Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners. This is Matt Hodap, the producer of this podcast. Thanks so much for listening to our show. We have, honestly, an incredibly important episode this week. First, I just wanted to give you a quick announcement. This is the last episode of our second season. But don't worry. We're just taking a short two-week break to prep for season three, and we'll be right back in your earbuds. So please stick around, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, that's all. Enjoy the show. This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. There's driving while black, sitting at Starbucks while black, barbecuing while black. The Wild Black hashtag has become a popular social meme, calling out instances of black people policed in public spaces. So what about teaching Wild Black? We get perspectives from three of our black educators coming up on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk, so let's introduce them. David Muhammad, it's been a while. What do you teach? I'm a high school teacher, and I teach economics, international relations, and U.S. history. Lynn Shipley, what do you teach? I'm a teacher of business education and computers technology. At the middle school level? At the middle yes, school yeah. level, yes. And Bakari Ukuu, what do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to our first topic. For decades, the number of black teachers in K-12 schools has remained stubbornly and disproportionately low. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, in the 2011-2012 school year, that's the last year for comprehensive national data, Black teachers made up 6.8% of the national teaching workforce. That's actually down from 7.5% back in the late 1980s. Some researchers say it's a pipeline problem. There are not enough black college graduates going into teaching. Others say it's a hiring problem. Districts aren't prioritizing diversity and seeking out new teachers. We'll get into all of that, but since we happen to have three black teachers on the panel this week, we also just simply wanted to hear what it's like to be a black teacher in America today. So when I pitched this topic to you all in the days leading up to this taping, Bakari, you actually responded in an email with a list of possible items you wanted to cover. And one of the first was, in your words, the burdens of being a black teacher. So just explain that. What do you mean? Being a black teacher in today's society, there's just so many additional factors that we have to consider, whether that's the way we show up, the way we engage with our students, the way we engage with our colleagues. There's just so many things that we have to consider more than our white colleagues. And Lynn and David, I'm just going to kind of step back and let you guys kind of talk. For myself, the experience of being in an environment where there's very little diversity, then there's this this microaggressions, there's this mm-hmm. elephant in the room all the time mm-hmm. of they don't know how they should speak to you, and then they're not used to seeing a person of color in a position of authority. And so there's always this interesting energy of them kind of really watching you, you know, I mean, just from the smallest thing of like, what music is he listening to, to like, what are you wearing, um, how you wear your hair, I mean, just the smallest things, it's like you're always on this pedestal uh, of being watched. Are you talking about both teachers and students are Ab- doing this? Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, parents as well. I was um, definitely going to say that. You parents, can't forget about this parents like, and community Back members. to school night, 
Oh, man. <laughs> it's so always very interesting, especially when I first started teaching and they didn't know who I was. And they're watching you and they're listening to how you talk and they've heard their kids, kids talk about you. So there's just this interesting dynamic of... Um, well, you're doing good now, but we're going to kind of wait and see, you know, like any any moment. So It's almost like you're actually being policed, making sure you don't step out of line, making sure that you are, are towing the line. Right. We talk a lot about white supremacy on this podcast and how that infiltrates the classroom. I think even as a black educator, sometimes we are put in between a rock and a hard place where do we perpetuate the systems that we know are actually not aligned to the success of people who look like us, or do we actually push back? And when we're like one of the few in the building or one of the few in the district who are in these positions, we that's that additional burden that we have to consider. Do I continue to look out for myself and make sure that I have a job, or do I push you back in hopes that I can change the outcomes uh, in the long term? If you see the movie Get Out, it's like that feeling. Uh, David, you went into your own particular experience teaching at a school that is mostly white, both, you know, in terms of your your colleagues and your students. Bakari and Lynn, you teach in schools where the student bodies, at least, are mostly black and and minority students. Does that does that in any way change your experiences or leave you with different experiences from David? Um, since you're in an environment it, where there is, there are a lot of other people that look like you. Uh, our staff is still 70% white. You still have teachers that are wondering what it is you do different in your classroom in order to achieve the result you have. They look to replicate those things. A lot of it is relationship building, but a lot of it is cultural. And you can actually work with teachers on understanding the culture if they're open to that. Mm-hmm. Having large student body that looks like me and, and I can connect with in, in more authentic ways just from our cultural experiences and our background, our, our day-to-day experiences, is definitely value-added. So for me, I'm able to show what's possible and provide a, a mirror for my students. I will say, though, to Lynn's point that we have a predominantly white staff as well, and as an administrator now, it's even more challenging sometimes when I don't uphold the white supremacist norms of the K-12 educational system, and mm. I push back on that. Especially being a, a, a young administrator and a first-year administrator, it sometimes comes off as if I'm choosing the student side over the teacher side, mm-hmm. um, when in actuality, I'm trying to push for something greater and understanding that this is a, a training ground for our students. This is, this is their time to practice and to learn, and some things just should be a teachable moment, whereas when I consider it to be a teachable moment, sometimes other teachers want it to be a consequence. What I often process is that this double consciousness of, and Du Bois kind of talked about this in one of his earlier writings, is that as black people in America, we have this consciousness of we want to uphold our own African-American culture. At the same time, we also want to feel assimilated to the American culture and be as equals Mm -hmm. to our white counterparts. And so I say that in the sense of as an administrator and as a teacher, I would often find myself in that space of do I really show and connect with my kids in a way that I, I know that they would value or do I continue to uphold these norms and values that my white colleagues to perpetuate? And so just being in that, that space is sometimes very difficult. Most days I err on the side of kids um, because I feel like that's what we're here for and that's what long-term. So I I tend to disrupt a lot of spaces, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But I think just by being black and showing up in a space of education as an educator, not the janitor, not the paraprofessional, but the actual classroom teacher of record or a vice principal and administrator who leads staff is sometimes very nerve-wracking for people who don't look like us. And I would imagine it's difficult to have these conversations with white colleagues? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. One of the things our district has done is put together a restorative practice model 
for our kids. And that's like extending a state of grace to them that they might not normally have extended. That is very difficult for a lot of our white teachers because now they're asking for them not to be punitive and for them to maybe look behind the reasons of some of the behavior. Mm-hmm. We're asking them to extend a state of grace that is not normally extended to people of color. Mm-hmm. And that is very disruptive for our environment. Yeah, and I, I mean, when you, I'm listening to you guys, and, you know, of course my experience has been a little bit different, but when you talk about, like, the, the comfort with the students, I, I find that with my students of color, when I'm around them, I even feel their, their guards go down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they can just be. I think that part of that is the aspect that the, when you look at the history of education in America, it was very much modeled after the slavery complex and then after that the prison industrial complex. You know, we are in charge. We disseminate the knowledge. We tell you what to do. The bell rings. You go. You know, it's everything is very much factory driven. And we come in with the aspect of from our culture, which is much more familial. You know, it's much mm-hmm. more, um, you know, the village mindset mm-hmm. of it takes a village to build. And I think that that does challenge. And, and like Bakari was saying, sometimes you're not even intentionally trying to do it. It's just who you are. It's just the way in which I was brought up. And and it feels most natural. I feel like there's a, a natural pedagogy that comes with our culture and the way that we relate to our kids and, and to their families. And so I find that even sometimes where one of our family, our parent may be upset with the teacher or one of our white teachers, if I come in the room and I can de-escalate it much quicker, uh, not just because of the role in which I play, but because of the cultural capital in which I bring into that room and I can understand where they're coming from. And I even just the language in which I use with those parents mm-hmm. and with our parents um, sometimes completely shifts the dynamic of the conversation and of the moment. Similar to our Latino students and, and colleagues, where they're often leveraged as translators, I feel like there's this cultural translation that we have to do sometimes for our white colleagues in, in spaces that we would never ask our white colleagues right. to do the same. Right. Do your white colleagues get resentful at um, the connections that you make? And, you know, I think, I cast in another way, I guess, what types of allyship are you looking for from your white colleagues and, and what are the barriers that are in place for that? I know for myself, we started a diversity and inclusion committee and and efforts to try to calm some of the microaggressions that our students of color were facing and other minority students. And you see this pushback of, well, I'm not racist, so why do we need to talk about this? So uh, there's initially this defensive mindset, like, why are we talking about this? I'm not racist. You know, because if you look at, like, the Ruby Bridges teaching model, it was very much like, don't see color, Mm -hmm. and all kids are the same, and all all means all, and and that that model does not work, I'm sorry, Um, especially for kids who come from a variety of backgrounds. And then there's also the the aspect of they're not used to seeing us in a position of whether you want to call it authority or whatever. Um, They haven't been in positions themselves where they've had black teachers or black mentors or um, administrators as Bakari is. So a lot of times there's this silence. There's this they're not sure if they should say something, if they should listen. And then some are, are quite offended. I've had people actually, other teachers come to me and say, you know, and challenge me and, and, and feel offended that I even would bring up issues. Um, and in those cases, you can tell that there's, there's, a, there's a lack of comfort, there's an ignorance. White fragility is real. And I think that sometimes when our white colleagues are challenged to see a situation differently or through a different lens, it, they get very offended in the sense that they feel like the fact that we even bring race up is the problem and not that, that that racism is an issue. I think that we have to really have some hard conversations as educators. Even, we about, even as we begin talking about retaining and recruiting black teachers or 
teachers of color is that we use that as that that's the, that's going to be the solution to helping our um, students of color in in our classrooms. And what actually has to happen is that we know that at this current state. There are 80% of our teachers in America are middle-class white women. If we're not intentionally educating white women and, and white folk at, at large around the racial issues in America, then we'll never see the tide shift and the, and the gaps in education close because we don't have the simple, just by sheer numbers, we cannot close that gap alone. And I, and I think, Kyle, what you have to look at too is that there's, there's this mindset that we're trying to take over or mm-hmm. like... Um, we're going to try to assume power and and that you will and, not replace us. Right. And in that aspect, when we bring these things up, it's challenging the authority. But all we're asking for is a seat at the table. All we're asking for is for the best of the kids. And so I feel like I've I've seen this interesting contrast where teachers are very much ready to, to address LTGBQ mm-hmm, rights mm-hmm. and they'll, they're ready to address. They'll talk about poverty. They'll talk about student poverty and all those things. But do not bring up race. They'll talk about every other issue that's a, just affecting the students Ism. as if you could talk about poverty and race isn't a part of that. Like, you know, so th- there's this really this hesitancy. I think part of it, too, when you look at the fact that, as Bakari mentioned, what 80 percent of education is white women. A lot of them go into education, whether it's subconscious or not, is this savior mindset. I mean, you've seen Freedom Riders, right? Like it's this mindset like I'm going in and I'm trying to help these kids and how dare you say that I like have an issue? And it's like, yeah, there's some of these things that you might not even know that you're doing, right? And that has to be addressed so that we can do the best for these kids. Part of that gap, again, is that we're not educating very intentionally around how to get past that point. Because even like I was at, as I was at this AVID conference, there were multiple things that disturbed me as I was sitting at a table full of white women. Um, and one of the things they asked us to, to share with each other is, why do we do this work? And these are teachers from all, uh, all over, yeah, all over the state. You're at a conference yeah. this summer. In all over the, the United States. And so one woman said... She just, you know, was really passionate about helping underprivileged students. And that was the first time that this word really triggered me in the way that it did. Mm. And I wanted to tell her, and I didn't in that moment. I, I mean, I did disrupt some of her thinking. But in that moment, I want to say our kids are not underprivileged. They are oppressed, which is very mm. different than mm. underprivileged. To say a kid is underprivileged, one, you would never say that to a kid's face that you're underprivileged. But it implies that, one, privilege is the norm mm. and that everyone has access to that privilege. And then it also implies that the student chose to be underprivileged or whatever their circumstances was a, a series of choices on their end, it just does not put the onus on those who sit in, in privileged positions who are actually doing the oppression. So it's, it just really rubbed me wrong. And so one of the things that I walk away from that conference is thinking about the language of urban education particularly right, right, right. and who actually controls that dialogue. And so when I talk about disrupting spaces, even the way that we talk about the kids in which we serve is very problematic, and I think it's indicative of the white supremacist mindset that we've been conditioned to believe that these certain groups of kids are predispositioned to be a certain way. So even mm-hmm. when we talk about, like, at-risk youth, what are they at risk of being? What, right, are, like, what right. does that mean? Given that education is dominated by white people, even though we have a, a large population of students of color and Native American indigenous backgrounds, that we do not, we have not caught up to the times in which we need to be when we talk about communicating with them and connecting with them in more meaningful ways. I'm, a, I'm also going to add to that, um, not all of our children of color are underprivileged. Right, right, right. That right. is a brush that is so wide, it's ridiculous. We have children that we don't ever address who are middle class, upper middle class. We never address that group of students. Absolutely. They're considered, they're considered the good blacks. Yeah. 
you know, for lack as of as if a they don't word. have issues, they deal as, with. If they don't have issues, and I was one of those kids. Yeah, yeah and I and I was I grew up as one of those kids also. So well, I think that's part of the the need to open the conversation beyond this underprivileged. Because when we talk about, we know that every black person, whether you are a graduate from Harvard or you are in the White House, you are still facing oppression and discrimination in American society. And to just say, oh, if you're not underprivileged, then that doesn't count. Like President Obama sitting in the White House is still getting discriminated against. And, no, and, no, no doubt. Uh, no doubt. I, I understand that totally. I'm just saying that we have been marketed to what our black culture looks like by a machine that is much larger than we are. Absolutely. And we don't have a voice or, as he said, a seat at that table. And we have to start defining our own narrative also. We have to take back the narrative that has been defined for us. Now, yes, we have to navigate space differently, and we have to deal with some hurdles that white people can't imagine that we deal with on a day-to-day level, that our black students have to deal with. But we get to have a voice. I, I prop my students up to let them know they have a voice and how they... Yeah. I was just going to say, like, zooming that out even more, and, and like, specific in education, we think about curriculum, mm-hmm. having a voice and, mm-hmm. and understanding our story. So I think one of those burdens that I think about as a classroom teacher, I was very intentional about teaching my students black history and, and teaching them about a more diverse perspective of history, particularly. But yet, that's not what's going to be on the test. And so ultimately, what right, they're going right, to be held right. accountable is for this white man's narrative. It's like, how do we find this? Sp- right. Well, yeah. and but how do you find that space where you can do that effectively without those people looking on the inside saying, oh, what are you in there teaching? Like, right. what, what's going on in your classroom? What's your curriculum? And as um, educators of color and having a seat at the table, the proverbial table, what do we do while we're there is, is very critical. And it's like that's that, that double conscience that we have to navigate of do I push or do I just keep going with the flow and, and what's going to get us the furthest at the end of the day. And it's interesting, too. I'm listening to you, too, and I'm thinking, you know, because I know the question's coming up about, like, recruiting black teachers. And I think that that has to be also looked at inter- in, a, in a deeper way because just putting black faces or Latino mm-hmm. faces in the classroom isn't going to fix the problem, Preach. especially if your training mm-hmm. has been one in which you're pretty much modeling the same uh, styles of teaching that has been oppressive for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen I've seen black teachers be more detrimental, mm-hmm. you know, and administrators be more detrimental to some of the black kids than white teachers who, as you said, have done a phenomenal job, you know, because their language is, is harsh or um, they are now in this position of power and they feel like they need to assimilate to what they have been taught. If we don't put in purpose, if we don't do purposeful recruiting and also mentoring, we'll ourselves become what we are complaining about. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. I want to go all the way back to Brown versus Board of Ed. Oh, please do. And I know it is, they integrated the schools, but they didn't Didn't integrate the teaching staff. staff. Mm -hmm. And so you had a whole list of students that were literally lost, that were treated negatively, Mm -hmm. that were beat up on, and there was no recourse. Mm -hmm. There There was no action they could take in order to defend themselves. We effectively sent our children into the schools without any defenses. Mm Say that. that has dropped down three generations to what we have now. Mm-hmm. And so now we have kids that don't like school because their parents didn't like school and their grandparents didn't mm-hmm. like school because 
they were pulled out and treated so badly or so horribly. We have got to really systemically look at how we address all of our children. Well, that, that gets to the, I mean, you, several of you have alluded to it, this idea that recruiting black teachers has, has proven stubbornly difficult. The percentage of, of black teachers in America has remained relatively flat, if not fallen over the last few decades. It's mm-hmm. well below 10% in, in the, the overall total. I mean, on one hand, there's this idea that it's a pipeline issue, that there's not enough black college graduates going in. I mean, there's been studies on that. There's also been studies on the hiring practices of districts and some of the, some of the latent racist and biased tendencies of some hiring practices in some districts. Uh, what are your experiences? And uh, how did you all get into teaching? And how did, I mean, and, and, and what, what would it take to get more, more black educators into classrooms? So I'm a third-generation educator. I never wanted to go into education. My initial degree was in marketing because mm. I thought teachers were so disrespected and treated so poorly. Mm-hmm. Yet, I recognize that that is the front line of action with our students. Mm-hmm. And so at 40, I went into education, third career. It is important that I had very good mentors who allowed me to be disruptive of whatever mm-hmm. teaching status was taking place. Mm-hmm. You have got to be, if you're going to do this work, you've got to be courageous. You have Mm. to have courageous conversations, and you have to be willing to break the mold. And if you're not, then we're still going to continue to get what we have. So you you even came out of college and didn't want to be a teacher. I think that that reflects a lot of the research. There was a 2016 Brookings Institution study that kind of identified what a self-perpetuating cycle of black college graduates often get out, and then, you know, teaching is the last place they want to go because they had rough experiences in school, or they kind of, like, you know, survive the school system and want to go on and do something else, and they don't... The self-perpetuating part of it is that there's now there's a new generation of black students coming up that doesn't have the models in class, in the education sphere, to be inspired to go into teaching. Yeah. You have also got to remember, and I'm sorry, guys. No, uh, teaching was one of the few professions black people could Thank do. Thank you. Yeah. For years. Uh, we could be uh, postmen. We we could be teachers, we could be garbage men, but it was one of the it was one of the most revered positions in our community Absolutely. until Brown versus Board of Ed. Yeah, and I kind of compare our journey in some ways when I look at like immigrant journeys, right? Like if you look at certain immigrant groups, minority groups that come over, they're looking for a way out of their impoverished state, right? So. Uh, you go into engineering, you go into the medical field because you're trying to push yourself into an affluence. And I think that when you look at the African-American experience, those of us who have went on to college, it is almost as if we are migrating out of our state. Right. So doc- black doctors, black lawyers, black engineers. So it's more prestigious and the, the economic uh, benefit is much higher. So um, when we do go off to college, we're looking for a way to really make it, you know, financially. And teaching, while it's respected, you know, you get a pat on the back, is not going to pay the bills in that, in, that, in that way. And administration is really something that many of us African-Americans don't even foresee. I mean, it's interesting that I've been in teaching almost 10 years, and when Bakari said he was the vice principal, I almost was like, wow. Like, you know, like, I've met black principals before, but especially not one at his age, and, and it's just rare. Bakari, what's your experience when you— um, well, I'm very similar to Lynn, although I, this is not my third career. Um, <laughs> I did not go to school to be an educator initially. In fact, I was very adverse to becoming an educator. But I Why? Had, it just wasn't 
it wasn't for me. I actually wanted to go to law school. See? Um, yeah. But I, at that time, I had a very problematic mindset. So mm-hmm. I've always been very community-centered and, mm-hmm. and oriented. And so I thought I wanted to go to law school, become a prosecuting attorney, and help clean up our streets, um, which is a very problematic statement to make when we talk about just funneling more black and brown bodies into the criminal justice system. But at the time, I had no idea. What actually got me interested in education was that at the time, Tulsa, where I'm from originally, had closed several of their minority schools mm-hmm. um, as part of their master planning. And <laughs> the community was like completely unaware that this plan w- was two years in the making. So they found out about six months before those doors closed. And so I went to several community events and ran into some Teach for America Corps members and that's what actually, I had no idea that Teach for America was even a thing. They convinced me to apply. I got accepted, came here to Kansas City, found my passion, fell in love with yeah. education. And I've stuck around because our kids deserve. And I realized that throughout all that, like the best way to clean up our streets is to keep them off the streets and like educate them about what's going on in this world. Mm-hmm. And so, as Lynn said, education is truly the front line. And, and that's why I find myself showing up every day. One thing, I, another thing that I wanted to ask about, you know, the driving while black hashtag is a very popular on social media. And in recent weeks, we've also seen things like sitting in Starbucks while black or barbecuing while black. There it's are living while black. Uh, living yes, while black. It's, 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 yeah. the, it's the larger rubric of hashtag blank while black. Um, uh, really just kind of commentaries and backlash for the, the policing and criminalization of, of black people in public spaces for doing nothing illegal. There is not a teaching while black hashtag per se, or at least not a very prominent one, but I wonder what does teaching while black mean to you? You got to have the right catchphrases. Like the, you got to have the witty comebacks for your kids. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a teaching while black. I feel like there will be, if I'm, I'm thinking about what would Twitter say if <laughs> that was a trending hashtag, you would see memes with side eyes looking at um, looking at their colleagues mm-hmm. in professional <laughs> development particularly. Karen brings the wrong kind of food to the yeah, faculty, the <laughs> faculty potluck. I'm, I'm also going to say it's a lot of hugs. My kids mm-hmm. hug me, golly, walking down the hallway. Hug a lot of teachers, but a lot of teachers are not open to it. So they know who to approach for that and who not to. Middle school, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little different. Middle school is a little different to be hugging. I I hug my kids in elementary for sure, but middle school... I'm trying to stay out of HR's office. (laughs) No, Um, I think... You have to master the side Yeah, right. You're right. I think um, uh, with Teaching While Black, you would get a lot of also holding your tongue Mm -hmm. when you get asked questions by colleagues that are semi-offensive, but you're trying to figure out, are they sincere and they just don't know better? Or have you been sent by some committee to challenge me? Because, I mean... (laughs) Give me an example. Oh, my gosh. Okay, like, when I first started teaching, I was 23 years old, somebody made a joke about, like, was the district trying to fulfill a quota? They get real excited to share with me, like, if they've had, like, conversations Mm -hmm. about, like, stuff. They're like, hey, I just wanted you to know that, like, I went went to the uh, Kendrick Lamar. Hey, I I saw Black Panther and it was really great. Like, (laughs) Okay, like, you're really excited to tell me this. Or, like, I get kids, especially when I first started teaching, like, I, like again, I teach at an all-white school. They'll come up to me, yo, 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 Mr. Roman. I'm like, why are you talking to me like that? Like, <laughs> how do you know I talk like that? Like, I don't talk like that in class, not to you, you know. I, <laughs> it's just interesting, those little things. I think to that point, we definitely master the art of code switching. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, I, when I think about teaching while black, we... 
to that point, like I think we often have to be like um, real life, real time urban dictionaries for a lot of our mm-hmm. colleagues. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mr. Cool, do you know what this means? I heard a student say this. What does that actually mean? And so right. I think that they just assume that we we are just as hip as our kids are, which, which we usually are. Pretty, yeah, I'm hip. Do I you, try to be. Do you consider these incidents uh, microaggressions? Do you consider them to be are just like you said? Like it, sometimes it's hard to parse whether you know it's well intentioned or there's something more sinister. It's all the above. Yeah, I think there there are definitely some microaggressions built into that, but there are also some some sen- sincere and genuine absolutely inquiries. And you have, yeah, some and then when it's sincere, you do just kind of have to laugh it off and try because some of them do are trying to be helped. You know, I noticed I have an administrator who's uh, she's a associate principal and she's phenomenal, but she will come to me and ask me like serious questions about things that she's making sure she's not doing wrong on on a cultural level, and she just feels comfortable with me to do that and I've grown to respect her for being willing to step outside of her comfort zone and let me check her every now and then you know but then you also get the other end of it where it's my it is microaggressions and it is them trying to see how you're going to respond to certain things and in those cases you have to be careful because it's like okay do I do I code switch and just kind of play this off and I've found that the best way is to beat them intellectually you know have your facts right and then they they really oh, can't you, you gotta stay fact ready yeah. I think that one of the one of the skills I, I'm working on and, and trying to get better at is that this notion of like calling people in versus calling people out and that allows me to ask more questions of them to really get to a sense of are you sincerely trying to figure this out or are you just trying to have a moment and so when you call people in you're inviting them to understand your perspective and like you're seeking to understand their perspective mm-hmm. whereas when you call people out it seems to be like you're just letting them know that this was foul that you've wronged me here and it's like no exchange of understanding so mm-hmm. I'm really striving to be better at calling people in a versus calling them out <laughs> and I'm not sure where to put this under or if you guys experienced the fact that the idea of letting our kids get away with things because they're poor black kids mm-hmm. um, low as opposed to the low expectations is killing our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, someone told me a microaggression was to tell a kid to take their uh, hoodie off. And I said, no, when you're walking inside of a building, your hood needs to come off. <laughs> I don't care what color you are. So we're under a difference of opinion on what a microaggression is and what, what it versus what they think it is. Explain the, we, the, the low expectations thing. Explain that. You mean that you... Well, I know, like, it's great that she said it because like, when you have black students in your class, sometimes there's this expectation that, well, since you're black, you're going to kind of let me slide, like, one for the homies. And it's like, no, <laughs> actually, and I and I pull my black students. You may have, have to define what one for the homies. One for <laughs> your fellow African-Americans, <laughs> because you're also a black teacher. We have 36 black kids in my school. And so this year I had more black students in my class than I ever have. I had one class where I had four, and it was like, wow, you know, this is a lot for us. I pulled them all aside the first week of school. And I said, look, I'm holding you to a higher expectation because people are going to assume if you get an A in my class, it's because, well, he gave, he gave him an A because he's black too. So if you fail, you fail. And if you do well, I'm going to be there to have your back. But I can't let you slide. So, you know, I'm not going to let you run your mouth differently or come in class late or wear a hood on your head. That is not allowed. And you know for a fact that in... A and B classroom, they would get on you, and then you'd be coming to me saying, oh, Mr. Muhammad, they wasn't, they were trying to target me because I was black. No, you know better, so don't try to just do it in here uh, because you were in here with my, in my class. And then you, I think you, what you were also saying was that you find some of your colleagues have low expectations for black kids. Definitely. Um, be, because of assumptions that they're making. 
in middle school to have a battle with the middle schooler takes on a whole mm-hmm. different look. Mm-hmm. They're in mm-hmm. the midst of a whole lot of things from hormones to uh, just trying people. Mm-hmm. So when you have rules and boundaries, kids, they really like them, but you have to be willing to hold mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So many teachers allow the kids to, for lack of a better word, punk them mm-hmm. in every way, shape, and form. They can't do this because of that. They can't, oh, poor as me. That does not exist. <laughs> you have to hold them to the same expectations that society will hold them to when they walk out that door. Absolutely. Well, and I would push that further while also challenging. I, I get very leery anytime I hear holding them to the same expectations as society, especially at middle school. School is a, a training ground. The, it's an opportunity for kids to learn with the safety net. And I think that when we start saying, well, in society, this is what it's going to be. Well, they're not quite there yet. They're 13, 12 and 13, maybe 14. And so I think that I, I get where you're coming from with that. I just think that it's a slippery slope. I would also add that low expectations goes far beyond behavioral expectations. I think that mm-hmm. what I see the, the most harsh impact or the most damning impact for our students is that when you don't expect so-and-so to deliver on an assignment, so you still just, you never push them, you never give mm-hmm. them the resources they need to actually fulfill their potential because you don't believe they have that potential because they come from a background that may be very traumatic. And so it's, oh, I'm not going to worry you with that task. I'm not going to worry you with that. I'm, I'm going to pity you. It's either I'm not going to pity you or I just don't believe that you're capable of doing it, so I'm just not going to waste my time in, in giving you that assignment mm-hmm. or in giving you that charge. And so I see, where I see low expectations happen the most is, the most is in academics where I don't believe you can, so I'm not going to support yeah. you. Or it's too hard to support you, so I'm just going to focus on the kids who, who already have it together. So based upon what you're saying, I'm looking at social-emotional learning also. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about what society expects, I'm not talking about white society in general. I'm talking about our kids know how to operate at church. Mm-hmm. They know how to operate at restaurants. But, they, know okay. how to operate, they know how to operate in the doctor's office. Mm. When, they, when the parent comes in, a child has a whole different demeanor. Our children code switch just as much as we do. Mm-hmm. But right. their code switching might not be most advantageous in what they have seen taking place in I could support that in some ways because, too, what we have to look at, you know, and I understand where you're coming from as well, you know, they're in this developmental stage and we don't want to push them beyond their development like everybody else gets a chance to develop. But I think we have to oh, re- also recognize is that, hey, Tamir Rice was developing and nobody gave him that chance. Trayvon right, Martin, but that's, you know, so but I feel that's, like... That's actually the ill that I, I feel like... So we can't on one token say we need to teach and, and perpetuate our, our history as it, it truly is and then say, well... The greater society is going to treat you like this, so here's the box I have to put you no, in. No, but I'm not saying and put them in the box. But that's I'm exactly saying, what it is. But becomes. you can have that real conversation with them. You can say, look, right. let's keep it real right now. Like, you know that when you step outside these doors that you're going to be judged for this. This is what your history is. This is the understanding of where we're coming from. I get you in your developmental stage. But that person walking down the street doesn't get that. Right. They don't under- and so that's the reality, and we've always had to have that conversation, right? Even uh, before Trayvon yeah, Martin we've and before Tamir Rice, Agreed. my brother and my father and my grandfather, yeah. they all had that conversation had about what it took. And, I, and that was at all-white schools, and I think that that's also part of the reason why we need more of you, Bakari. Mm-hmm. Like, we need more administrators. We and need you, more, Mom, you. And we need diversity coordinators and all that in the schools because— these teachers do not know how to address these students, and there's not enough training for educators to deal with these kids on a variety of levels. Yes, and. I don't, I don't fully disagree, but part of it still just very much does not sit well with me because 
yes, I, I mean, these are conversations I have with kids all the time about here's what consequences look like in school, here's what consequences look like in the real world. And I think that there that there's a space where that can happen. But when I heard Lynn saying that um, we have to teach them about that, I'm thinking the we being the, the 80% white women who don't understand the dynamic there. So they're not able to have that conversation around right. here's what the world really treats you No, like. that's why we need All more they want to do is throw the book at our kids, right. and they want to say, no, you did, you deserve a punitive consequence. You deserve this because we're going to stop you from being the criminal that the, that the TV screen tells right. us you're going to be unless we give you these right. consequences. Right, and that's the problem. So, like, okay, I can, give a, I can give an example in my district. We had a kid, middle school kid, who was, he was being a kid in, in, at lunch, you know, mm-hmm. messing around, horsing around. White teacher comes up to him and says, now, when you turn 16 and a cop shoots you, it's going to be your fault. Mm -hmm. And that space is where we see the need for administration, coordinators to come in and be able to rectify because now that kid has left the district. We've been hit with ACLU. But this isn't like this. That's one example out of how I don't I can't. That's just one reported. That's just one report. Right. And so that's the very real thing. And. There's no hiring that can happen quick enough to rectify that, right? Like, there needs to be some very serious, intentional conversations with educators and administrators Administrators very quickly, or we're in, we're in crisis mode. Truly and, that, and that's one of the things I'm talking about. The fact is that we have got to be honest with our teachers about, and when I talk about extending a state of grace, that same kid, that same white kid that does whatever mm-hmm. in public is going to be looked at differently from white people than the same black kid. And we've had kids come to school high and get away with it. And we need to have that true conversation. Even when we have a conversation, Mm -hmm. a narrative, a side-by-side narrative Mm -hmm. of what takes place and Mm -hmm. we talk about the reactions that people Mm -hmm. have, that's the conversation we don't have. If we are stuck with 80% of the teaching population being white female, then we're going to have to train them on the response of what takes place. And do they want to hear us talk? And... it's, but it's so I guess it, it and this is a whole larger conversation, but it when I hear you say we, I'm assuming the we being the educators of color and native and indigenous backgrounds having to do the work to educate our white counterparts. And I feel like part of that is like, is it the the responsibility of the oppressed to no longer be oppressed or is it the responsibility of the oppressor to stop oppressing? And I know that that's like but why would the oppressor stop? What? Right. What benefit? Like, There's no benefit like, in the you know, oppressor They're going to wake stopping. up one day and be like, you, you know what? You, I'm so wrong for this. <laughs> right. Like, I need to change. Right. And I'm going figure, I'm I mean, to figure out how to do it for myself. So there could, there's why, some assumptions why, but, but that could there, be made about teachers, right? So, like, if you come in to do this work, you, we are assuming that you're doing it for the right reasons, that you want to actually make a change in students' lives and not continue to perpetuate the same oppression. You hope so. That, but you're looking at people like Tim Wise. They talk. You're looking at mm. the White Privilege Conference. You're looking at... Uh, the uh, lady who discusses right fragility. There are people out there who are white. And my contention is the white teachers listen more from other white people than they do from black people any day. That's true. I I mean, yeah, at least in my experience. (laughs) as a former educator I forgot Kyle was on the mic (laughs) as a former educator can you tell us about your experiences with colleagues of color actually Kyle that would be interesting from your experience what has it been like when diversity and inclusion has been brought up like what feelings are brought up what conversations are had when we're not in the room Mm. Nice, nice. Mm. Put me on blast. Right. <laughs> hey, well, we're calling you in. We want to understand. Can you can you share your? Um, I. So this is an interesting question. I, I think you're facing a really a really tough, long, high hill because 
Well, I mean, my personal experience, so I, I was also Teach for America. I, the, the training they gave us, I, I had not thought about these issues when I, when I went into the teaching profession. I, I think, you know, in retrospect, I went in with a very, I guess you could call it stereotypical savior mindset, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, you know, in retrospect, not something I'm proud of. But that's where I was at when I was 23 years old uh, mm-hmm. mentally. But I had to, you know, I had to make a lot of mistakes um, and I had to be embarrassed and, and say some things that were probably at the time offensive and, you know, ask my colleagues questions that at, at the time they probably felt were offensive, but be open to the idea of like making a mistake and falling on my face. And, and I think, mm-hmm. I don't know how many white teachers you have that are willing to do that. Right. Right. Um, and not to say that I did a very good job at it, but I think I, 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 I would like to think that I was open-minded enough to not always have the answers and not always be be in a position of control or authority. And that's that's a hard place for a lot of white people to get. Yeah, it makes man, it makes me think like maybe we're looking we're not looking early enough in this process. Like I had a, a a white colleague who she's done a lot of work with me in diversity and she always talks about we need to go to teachers' colleges and start having this conversation mm-hmm. with like you wanna be a teacher in America in two thousand eighteen in the public schools you know, then you need to start thinking about and having these conversations then because some of them come out of certain programs and they're like, like you said, you haven't even thought about it. Like you've only thought about curriculum and you've only thought about lesson planning and perfect testing. And and then you get into the field and you might do a little student teaching and then it's like, what, a week before you teach? And they're like, oh, unpack all your privilege. And like, I've had four years, five years of all these ideals of what I think teaching is going to be. And then I take the first teaching job I can get or whatever. And I'm in this environment where I'm I'm packed full of ideas and I haven't had any practical training or practical conversations and I feel like you know we need we need more uh, professors of color and we need more um, training at all levels to get us to a point where we're going to actually be able to have some some foreseeable change. I think part of that though, to David's point, we do have to be okay with bursting bubbles. And I think that I, I just, I mean, I, because I'm not a traditionally trained educator, so I didn't go to my school's college right. of education, right. but I would have imagined that a curriculum, you can't have a curriculum conversation without talking about race. Like you ne- can't have a, cur- you it. cannot. Yes, you can. They did it. I know you can, yes, you can. but it's like, <laughs> how do you call yourself having an effective conversation and, and, and semester class on curriculum and it's lesson sad. planning, whatever talk, without ever talking about That's, the kids in which you serve. And therein lies the problem, right? Like, Again, I went to, at the time, top four teachers' college in the country, Emporia State. The Teachers Hall of Fame is on our campus. Mm. And not once in my entire teaching program did we discuss race or diversity of students or anything of that nature. And these professors, you know, are all, you know, all these awards and accolades, and we didn't discuss it one time. And then I go into student teaching, and my school is 50% Latino. You know, and it's like we are we are missing the mark because I think what's happened is we're so happy to get people into teaching and we're so focused on state funding and all this kind of stuff that we're just funneling them through and we're not thinking about the what we're we're putting them out in the world as. And that has much more of a detrimental impact when you put a teacher out there that's not ready mm-hmm. in any other field, right? In any other field, you look at the medical industry, you have to go through so much training before they're going to ever let you just be on your own as a doctor. You know, Law, I mean, okay, I know we can challenge that. And all that, but still, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like actually the path towards being a teacher needs to be harder. 
and he needs to be more in death, and he need to pay us more. Okay, that was gonna say you can't do all those things mm-hmm. without compensating. And not compensate, yeah, compensate us. If, I think people would take education more seriously if you put us through a more rigorous process and paid more. I think you would have a better product, and we would have better impact on the students. We began this conversation by talking about uh, you know burdens, the burden you feel of being black educators. Um, does this? Does the burden feel more uh, urgent or heavier in this uh, in the current uh, the political Absolutely. environment? Absolutely. Part of me is becoming so passionate about the diversity and inclusion work that I've been getting involved in that I've stopped thinking about my curriculum. Like, all I think about all day long is, Keelan, I got to help him get a scholarship. Or, um, you know, Bree came and told me about some kid calling her the N-word. You know, like I'm thinking about those things and these microaggressions they're dealing with and their future and trying to put together some situations that are going to help the environment that I'm not thinking about my classroom. And it's like this weight that's on me because I feel like I want to save them. You know, I want to. And it's a responsibility that you feel when you're one of the only uh, in your building or at a, or who's thinking like that. And I think that I think a lot of black educators, um, whatever level they're at, they're, they feel a responsibility to do as much as they can. And you you go home and you're exhausted because it never leaves you. Teaching is one of those fields that never leaves you. You can't just clock out. When you, like you said, you turn on the TV, everything trickles back down into the classroom. So the conversations that are being had, issues that are happening with migrant students or migrants who are being, the children who are being separated from their parents, that comes back down into the classroom and it, it impacts us. When there's a, a shooting of a kid or a kid's attacked by a police officer, it trickles back down into the classroom. And then I feel this weight to, well, I need to have this conversation with so-and-so so that don't happen to him. You know, and it's just whether people think that's realistic or not, it's just it, it's on my mind and on my heart all day long. And I don't know if I call it a burden, I don't call it responsibility, but it's very exhausting. And I don't think our white colleagues feel that mm-hmm. because I, too, also am worried that is that cop car trailing me? No matter how many degrees I have, you know. So like, um, when I sh- when like we talk about teaching while I'm black, my colleague can show up feeling kind of relaxed and wear sweats and, and a hoodie one day, and nobody thinks twice of it. If I wear Jordans and sweats and a hoodie, now I'm worried about do I fit some stereotype? Do I look a certain type of way? When I leave this building, people don't know I'm a teacher, so I need to dress dress to the nines every single day. So you know I'm a professional and I'm an educator, and that wears you down. You know, sometimes we just want to sit back, eat a piece of fried chicken. And watch ATL. <laughs> you know, I would also add that I'd agree that being a black teacher is not a burden, but I definitely think there are burdens associated with it, and that was mm-hmm. where that suggestion came from. I think that to David's point, when I look at my kids, I see myself, and mm-hmm. like ultimately, I don't think our colleagues, our white colleagues, have that same connection. And so, when I think about seeing myself, we want to give our best to ourselves, and so. I cannot afford to clock out because Mm. ultimately that kid becomes my doctor, my lawyer, my neighbor, my whatever. And so whereas our white colleagues often can clock out, drive across town and go do what they do. And I'm not saying that's all of our white colleagues, but oftentimes that's the sentiment that I feel is articulated when they can just shut off and and just be done or they don't have to care to the extent in which we are obligated and and have a responsibility to care because this is us. Like we are our students and and it is incumbent enough. If we don't, then who will? Yeah. It's kind of that, that mindset that we operate. We truly feel that their successes are successes. When they, when they go on and do great things, we feel extremely proud and indebted to them. And then when we have ones who slip through the cracks, 
you know. We question ourselves. What, what did I, did, I do What did wrong? I not do? Did I not what have the right conversation? I have students who've ended up in, done, doing prison time where, I, you know, you find out they didn't go to school and they dropped. I'm like, man, could I, have, could I have done more? You know, and I don't know. I'm sure there's teachers who feel that because they're passionate about their field. But it's a little bit different when, like he said, I can truly see myself in that classroom. I can truly see myself in them because I literally was there. Well, and I also know that other people will see me in them. Too. Right. So right. there's that there's that caveat that again that there's another young black male. Oh, but Mr. Akuu, you don't act that way. So why do they act that way? And so it's Absolutely. like that when I when when the outside world sees my kids, they see me. When I see my kids, I see me as well. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's very important that I pour all that I can while I have them with me. Yeah. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, you guys are on summer break, but I think at least a couple of you are still working summer school, so you've been around kids. David, what are your kids into? My kids these days is a shout-out to Lauren Winston. She won the Princeton Prize Award, which... um, uh, gave her the opportunity to go to Princeton University for a week, fully funded, and they gave her $1,000 cash. Is um, this a student of yours? Uh, yeah, she, well, she was AP and, and IB, so she's a little bit too advanced for my classes. But <laughs> she's been involved in some work that I've been doing, and she was able to go there with students from all around the country, and they win these awards based on their race relations projects that they've done. And so I'm just extremely proud of her uh, for winning that award. Last year we had a girl who was a runner-up. So Lauren Winston, shout-out to you. Kids these days are making me proud. Can I... Uh, ask what her project was or what she was Yeah, so she started a nonprofit called Bridges KC, um, which brings in speakers of a variety of backgrounds. She's brought in a a Muslim woman to speak to some of our students. She's brought in a LGBTQ representative. And then she's also been involved in uh, our diversity and inclusion efforts where she's done the uh, KC bus tour and other projects as well. So just a culmination of all the the activities that she's been doing for the past three years is what she uh, pushed for, and I'm just very proud of her. Oh, cool. Very cool. Lynn, what are your kids into? My kids are into The Incredibles too, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, they've all seen it and uh, have talked to me over the weekend and have loved it. Uh, what's crazy <laughs> is that the original movie came out like a decade 14 ago. Years. 14, 14 years ago. Yes, 14 years. <laughs> and, and the movie picks up right where the last movie left off, awesome. literally. It's crazy. When you're not a teacher or you're not a, a parent of like a toddler or a, a little kid, there are some movies that just don't even register. And yeah. I hadn't even like, I hadn't even thought about The Incredibles too. <laughs> He's my son's two, so he's not <laughs> clamoring to go to movies yet. But, uh, Bakar, you are uh, administering summer school, so you have been around elementary kids this summer. What are they into? Pool. Anything that <laughs> has to do with the pool. They, they keep trying to get me to let them go on a field trip to a pool. We have a pool right across the street from my summer site. And so uh, Friday's our last day for summer school, so they're trying to convince me that they've earned a <laughs> pool field trip. Is it going to work? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have worn me down enough. But, and it's just so hot, so it's, it's, it's an appropriate time. Yes, it's, so. it's grossly hot in Kansas City right now. 
Well, thanks to our teachers this week, David Muhammad, Lynn Shipley, Bukhari Uku'u. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Thank you.